Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to AI. My name is Robert Doerr, and I have the honor and privilege and luck to be able to host and engage in a conversation with our guest, George Will, who has been for more than 40 years educating us and entertaining us and challenging us with his writing about the public sphere and the American experiment. And he's done it again with his latest book, The Conservative Sensibility, which, like his previous writings in other ways, has tried to provide a guide for us to navigate the divisions that exist in American political life And it seems to me, George, that you make, uh, for a modern age, Lincoln's argument that the key to our future is a reconnection to the principles of our founding, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. And I want the audience to know that the book, it provides a guide and a, a help and a kind of North Star for how we can get through this difficult period, which is what you've been doing all these years. And so that's why I'm So grateful for you being here, and I'm so pleased that I can engage in this conversation. Well, thank you. I look forward to it. If I want to ask you a a grounding question, what are the most important characteristics of a conservative sensibility? And can you give me an example of how they lead to a specific policy position? By sensibility, I mean something more than an attitude and less than an agenda. It's a way of seeing, perceiving, experiencing, coming to terms with the flux of life and events. The conservative sensibility says, good, we, don't, we like control lost. The epigraph of my chapter called Conservatism Without Theism is from Aristophanes. World is king having driven out Zeus. That's the conservative sensibility. It's Lucretius, if you will. It's things are out of control and isn't that grand because the exhilaration of a free society is exactly that, that we don't know the future. People are always saying in America... Campaign spending's out of control. This and that's out of control. Said, Good, yes, it's supposed to be out of control because the controllers are dangerous. So the answer to how it applies to a particular policy question is to just throw up your hands and say, isn't that wonderful? Not necessarily because it's not always wonderful, to put it mildly. But it is to say that the alternative is worse than the problems we have from freedom at the moment. Well, there's been a lot of talk around town that you've changed a little bit. You know, you wrote a book called Statecraft is Soulcraft, and that seemed to be a conservative critique of the libertarian view. And now you've written a book that seems to be the libertarian critique of the conservative view. I'm a libertarian-ish in that I say, before the state interferes with an individual's freedom or the two or more individuals contracting together voluntarily, it ought to have a good reason and ought to say what it is. And it ought to be often submitted to a judicial supervision to decide whether or not this, the reasons given are real or pretextual. That said, in 1981, I gave the Godkin Lectures at Harvard, and it became a book two years later, read by dozens, the title of which was less important than the subtitle, the title of which was Statecraft or Soulcraft. The subtitle was What Government Does, not what it should do, not what it should try to do, but what it can't help but do. Any regime any structure of laws, any chosen political system shapes the soul of the people. When Jefferson and Hamilton argued in our first great argument, they were arguing about what kind of people we were going to be. 
sturdy, rural, stable yeoman, rather like Thomas Jefferson, as Jefferson wanted, or uppity, restless, entrepreneurial people like Hamilton, which Hamilton wanted, understandably. So I fully understand, as sometimes libertarians forget, that a laissez-faire system is a government construction. Courts, judges, contracts, laws about fraud, arbitration, all the rest, it's complicated. And it requires a determined government to produce a political economy. That's what we used to call economics. And political economy is, has all the dignity of politics because it's about how we should live. And that's what our political arguments are always about. So just to push it on the libertarians a little further, you have a line, conservatives' task is to build a society that nurtures individuals to self-sufficiency. So that means that in the world that I come from, I worked in social services programs for years, that it's okay to have a government that says to people that in return for assistance, we're going to have a, some case management. Yes. We're going to ask you to go to work. We're going we're to involve some hassle in the, in the interaction between the state and the citizen in that context. No problem for you? No problem at all. And the classic case of this is the GI Bill. The GI Bill said to 12 million returning servicemen and women, if you do certain things that we consider socially useful, buy a house, get married, go to college, this is an entitlement for you. But these were people who had already rendered a civic service by serving in the military and were going to get a benefit if they continued in a different way to render a service to society. Now let's talk about Barry Goldwater and Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Yes. So you dedicate the book to Barry Goldwater And, of course, you write often and and frequently about the great wisdom of Daniel Patrick Moynihan and very different senators, very different views, very different votes. I feel a little bit like Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. Wickham and Darcy, how can they both be good? Well, they had different tasks. Goldwater's task was to rekindle an argument that had been raging in the Republican Party intermittently like a sine wave that Fight was replicated again between Dewey and Taft in the 40s, between Goldwater and Rockefeller in the 60s. And it was Goldwater's task. He was not a thinker, as he cheerfully admitted. He read his book, The Conscience of a Conservative, I think. But he was going to revive a vocabulary of limited government and of traditional republicanism. I think one of the great events in American political history was when Teddy Roosevelt's two of his very closest friends who loved the man, Elihu Root in Henry Cabot Lodge refused to support Roosevelt and supported William Howard Taft. Had they not done so, we would have had from then on two progressive parties. They didn't. And Goldwater, people say he lost because he lost 44 states. I say he won, just took 16 years to count the votes. He had, he had changed the nature of the Republican Party and the vocabulary we could talk about it with. But I didn't ask you about Teddy Roosevelt. I asked you about Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Yes. I'm I'm still trying to find out how Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Barry Goldwater get along. Pat came from a tradition of clubhouse politics in New York City. He was a new dealer to fiber of every cell in his body. He was a new deal man. But he loved politics. He loved the give and take of it, the sheer messiness of it. And most of all, he's the finest social scientist ever to serve in Congress famously said everyone, uh, all people are entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. And he grounded arguments, exuberant arguments, happy, cheerful arguments. He just understood the messiness of life. Knowing Pat Moynihan's the best joy I've had in 50 years. This is my 50th year in Washington. And 
that Churchill once said that meeting Franklin Roosevelt was like opening a bottle of champagne. That's how I felt about Pat. So it's, it shows that you can love a man you don't agree with. Of course. And, and good heavens, yes. I mean, Pat just loved the give and take and swirl of American politics. In the book, there's another aspect that surprised me. It was that you clearly have turned away from uh, judicial restraint or a reluctance on the part of courts yeah. to interfere in, in the decisions of legislatures. Tell us how that happened. And in the hands of, of a more progressive sensibility, isn't that a, a little dangerous? Yes. There's no safety in politics. The role I now prescribe for the courts is dangerous, that they will promiscuously go down a buffet of rights and invent all kinds of things. I just think that's marginally less dangerous now than the court's passivity through the rational basis test and other matters to an, a, an extravagant, unhinged, super, unsupervised democracy. Here's how it came out. Bob Bork, who, uh, I mean, I fought so hard for his confirmation in the summer and fall of uh, 1987 that my friend Meg Greenfield, running the Post editorial page, the day he was voting on, they ran an editorial, Dear George trying to talk me in off the ledge. I just decided I was wrong. I do not think it's the job of the judiciary to facilitate majority rule. I do not think that Alexander Bickel, Bob Bork's friend and colleague at Yale Law School, was right when he said that judicial review is inherently problematic because of what he called the counter-majoritarian difficulty. We're a majority rule country. I don't think so. First of all, just as as a matter of fact, most of what government does has not, is not responsive to majorities. It is responsive to small, compact, intense, confident, articulate, and well-lawyered factions. And so supervising their rent-seeking is not a counter-majorian problem at all. Second, I grew up in central Illinois, marinated in the spirit of Lincoln. I grew up in Champaign-Urbana. The Champaign County Courthouse, according to local lore, is where Lincoln, then a very prosperous railroad lawyer who was traveling doing business, was where he supposedly learned of the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The greatest career in the history of world politics began with his recoil, implacable, canny, subtle, but unrelenting recoil against the idea that we should settle the problem of the expansion of slavery into the territories by popular sovereignty. Voted up, voted down, said Stephen A. Douglas, the author of it, matter of moral indifference because, he said, majority rule is what America is about. Lincoln said, no, we're not about a process, we're about a condition, and the condition is liberty. Big difference. In your raising above the Constitution of the Declaration of Independence. It is, in Lincoln's phrase, the, uh, the Constitution is the frame of silver for the apple of gold. Frame's important, picture's more important, silver's valuable, the gold's more valuable. The Declaration is the heart of the matter. But in doing so, it seems to me you are allowing judges, if they were to turn to the Declaration, for instance, to create new rights. And the other thing it would do is something that I, I always thought you argued against, which was the progressive or liberal post-1960s attitude that whenever there was a problem that needed to be solved, go run to the courthouse. No, I don't say go run to the courthouse, but I do think there's Plenty for the government, for the courts to do in supervising what the legislatures do and increasingly what that fourth branch of government called the administrative state does. That'll keep it busy. Let's talk about conservative Mm -hmm. today. You say in the book, Lincoln's public life was devoted to reconnecting the country with the principles of the founding. 
This is conservatism's core purpose today. How are we doing? Not well. This is about argument. This is what Americans do is argue because we, we are, as Margaret Thatcher wisely said, European nations were created by history. America was created by philosophy, not least by her countryman, John Locke. If you don't like arguing, pick another country because that's what we do because we're constantly arguing about what unenumerated rights are, how should the Ninth Amendment be applied. This is the joy of being an American, the exhilaration of politics. George, I, that strikes me. I thought you were kind of grumpy these days. I, 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 you're you're I'm, getting joy and, and ill exhilaration out of, out of the divisions on the right? Well, there used to be a show called Fibber, McGee, and Molly, where Molly would say to her husband, if it makes you happy to be unhappy, be unhappy. <laughs> and conservatives, uh, I, I, I get certain pleasure out of being embattled. And, and uh, no one ever wrote political philosophy because they were happy. Hobbes didn't say, I'm so contented, I'm going to write the Leviathan. People write political philosophy because they're worried or angry or unsettled, and I'm all of those things. But I, <laughs> but I like to think I, I am like Goldwater, to whom the book is dedicated. dedicated. I, I am a cheerful malcontent. Let's talk about something that I'm curious about with regard to the founding principles. It presupposes a depth a knowledge, a goodness in our citizenry. Are American people today up to that? It's an open question, and we're going to answer it one way or another, because there was a degree of social capital in the country, in the country as it then was, four million people strung along the eastern fringe of a continent, 80% 80 of them living within 20 miles of Atlantic tidewater. There was a richness of the journalistic culture. There was a richness of the literary culture, a, a genuine civic culture that I think has been diluted, partly because there's so much more government to keep track of now that people sort of despair, they've given up on it, partly because what we call the social media and really anti-social media gives a serrated edge to American life and increasingly has people addicted, literally addicted to the dopamine they get from being angry. I'm quite serious about that. I think people are addicted to the pleasure of being angry. So you're not as, maybe you never were comfortable with Churchill's uh, admonition, trust the people. Churchill is said to have said, I'm afraid he didn't, but he is said to have said that any cure for faith and democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. I think what we should have done before the Brexit referendum if we had sent them the writings of James Madison, who would have said the first thing you do is do not try direct democracy. Madison said majorities should rule, and whether they should or not, they're going to rule. Therefore, care must be taken that majority opinion is filtered and refined and slowed and delayed and run through institutions so that, in the end, you have a republic under which... The people do not decide issues. They decide who will decide. But they, those who are deciding, these, making these decisions, I think you write quite eloquently in the book, are incapable of making the hard decisions of limiting government. Oh, they're capable. They don't want to. The one thing Madison got terribly wrong, and he can't be faulted for this, he could not have anticipated the modern world and the modern state. He said in one of the Federalist papers, he said, in a democracy and popular government, you will always see all power sucked into the impetuous vortex of the legislature. Exactly the reverse has been going on for 80 years now. The Congress has been eagerly spinning off its powers. 
People say presidents have been usurping powers. If only they had to usurp it. The first substantive words of the Constitution after the preamble is all legislative power shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. They have no right to do this. If, again, a properly engaged court were enforcing a non-delegation doctrine, it would stop it, or at least slow it. They are delegating to the executive branch essentially legislative powers. Chris DeMuth, an alumnus of this distinguished institution, says Congress today passes velities, not laws. They say we should all have quality education, and then it says over to you guys in the federal bureaucracy, fill in the details. That way all the trade-offs and difficult choices are made by other people. You have often written about the awful 20th century. How do you feel about the 21st? Basic conservative belief is things can always get worse and often will. My book is a summons to intelligent pessimism. Not fatalism, but pessimism is simply by understanding that the ways things can go wrong are myriad. And so you should be wary about them. Wary but not fatalistic. The 20th century built on two 19th century propositions. One is that history is a proper noun, capital H, that it has its own autonomy, that its unfolding laws of development are vast impersonal forces against which human agency is not futile but weak. Second, they denied, and this is what the progressives lit upon at the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th, they denied the reality of human nature. Deny the reality of human nature, you get rid of the nuisance doctrine, as Woodrow Wilson understood it, of natural rights, and you say human beings are only creatures that acquire culture. So they acquire whatever culture they find themselves situated in. Therefore, politics has an enormous jurisdiction, which is to shape the people by shaping the culture. And it's not just possible, it becomes a political imperative. And that is dangerous. You write, a habit of deference to excellence in public life and public-spirited self-denial. What does that mean? It's a, pra- it's, a, it's, a, it's a polite way of saying in praise of elitism. I've never met an American who says, well, you know what I'd really like for presidents is solid mediocrity. We would really don't want that. I mean, we know that we live in journalism, in dentistry, in theology under the tyranny of the bell-shaped curve. Some people are god-awful, some people are really terrific, and most people in the middle are mediocre. The question's not whether elites are going to rule. Whoever rules is definitionally an elite. The question is, and the problem of democracy, is to get consent to worthy elites. I think it's a formulation of a, of a great AEI ornament, Walter Burns. To get consent to worthy elites. A little bit of an international question here. I know it's not much in the book, but I wonder how the conservative sensibility informs the way you respond when you see a million Chinese in the streets in Hong Kong. I have a son who lives in Hong Kong now, and it's, a, it's, it's thrilling because uh, Hong Kong, like Taiwan in, in this direction and South Korea in another, are enormously successful outposts of open societies. And there's an attempt to close Hong Kong to make it a closed society, and it's thrilling. And it illustrates, there is a chapter in the book on, on going abroad. It's a phrase I took from John yeah. Quincy Adams' 1825 great state paper, We Do Not Go Abroad in Search of Monsters. But there is a tension in American foreign policy. We represent an epistemological assertion by our founders. They said some things are knowable. They are self-evident. By that, the founders meant they were apparent, to all minds not clouded by superstition. 
since we are custodians and exemplars of these doctrines that we think have universal applicability, not to everyone, not at all times, not everywhere, but they're universally valid in circumstances where they can flourish. There is a tension in our politics. On the one hand, we want to spread the word. On the other hand, we have to be aware of the viscosity of societies, particularly not our own. We need to know that the phrase nation-building is about as absurd as the phrase orchid-building. Nations are not tinker toys you pull apart and reassemble, and orchids are not built, they're organic flowers. And uh, so you have this tension, this, this invitation to a messianic foreign policy in our universalism, and the prudence, all prudence amounts to is applying general principles to messy reality, and the prudence required to balance those two. The reaction to a million Chinese in the streets of Hong Kong is... Thrilling. America should speak up. That's a difficult position Hong Kong's in, but we should be verbally and in other ways on their side. The book is full of condemnations of Woodrow Wilson and not FDR, less so FDR. Could you just give us a little sense of why you hold former president of Princeton and governor of New Jersey more accountable for our woes? I have often said that the most important decision taken in the 20th century was not Germany siding with (laughs) Austria after Sarajevo and not Hitler's decision to invade the Soviet Union and not Deng Xiaoping's reforms of China. The most important decision taken in the 20th century was where to locate the Princeton Graduate School. President of the University, Woodrow Wilson, wrote it down on the campus His nemesis, Dean Andrew Fleming West, wanted it where it is, up on a hill overlooking the campus. Woodrow Wilson, having suffered one defeat too many, had one of his characteristic tantrums, resigned, went into politics, and ruined the 20th century. I exaggerate somewhat and simplify a bit, but Woodrow Wilson was the first president to criticize the American founding, which he did not do peripherally. He, sweeping in the political science of the day, Science was in the air when he came in. Wright Brothers, Marconi, Edison, Ford. And the belief enunciated most by Herbert Crowley in The Promise of American Life, a book published in 1909 and never out of print since then, he said, look, we're going to apply science to society. And the first thing we have to do is get rid of the doctrine of natural rights because that is what he called Fourth of July rhetoric. He said explicitly, he said, don't read the first two paragraphs of the Declaration. It'll only mislead you. Get rid of the doctrine of natural rights because that implies that governments are instituted among men to secure those rights. First come rights, then comes government. Mm -hmm. And that inherently limits the state. Second, he said, we must get rid of the separation of powers which was all right once when there were so few of us. But now that we're a great nation, held together by copper wires and steel rails. We need a more nimble government, one of his favorite words, able to act with dispatch at the promptings of a strong executive. Remember, Wilson, to get an advanced degree in the second half of the 19th century, Americans went to Germany. And some of them came back to teach Woodrow Wilson at Johns Hopkins. And they learned in Germany to respect the Bismarckian state and the Hegelian view of unfolding history that justified the Bismarckian state. So Woodrow Wilson set out to emancipate us from the the founders thoroughly, the natural rights doctrine, the doctrine of the separation of powers and all the rest. He and the rest were forthright about this. They wrote that the founders got it wrong and that the founders were an anachronism we could no longer afford to worship. And they've been amazingly successful. 
So one last question about, so we're talking about presidents and politics. Where is the political home for someone with a conservative sensibility? We're homeless at the moment, but it's not a bad thing. A political party is not a, it's not like leaving a church. Political party is a utilitarian device, and when it quits being useful, you change. And, and parties uh, go through periods where they have to go slightly mad. The Democrats have had their periods, and the uh, Republicans are having one now. But uh, sobriety will come back to them, I think, if enough people argue persuasively enough. What about God and faith? Well, as, uh, I have, as someone said when he presented Napoleon with a volume about political <laughs> philosophy, Napoleon said, you do not mention God. He said, I did not need that hypothesis. Or as Bertrand Russell said when he was a famous atheist, of course, and someone said, what happens if you die and you're brought before God? And he says, why weren't you faithful? And I was telling him, you did not provide enough evidence. I, I have described myself as an amiable, low-voltage atheist. I grew up in a secular household. My father's father was a Lutheran minister. Therefore, he was, not, he was an atheist. No, it was, uh, he used to sit outside Pastor Will's study and hear the pastor and some of his more thoughtful congregants wrestling with the problem of reconciling free will and grace. And it made my father a philosopher. And I just grew up in a family where that question didn't come up. I think Bill Buckley got it right. Bill said a conservative need not be religious, but he cannot despise religions. And the world's great religions address universal, perennial human doubts, worries, aspirations. Not the deism of our founders. That was just, I mean, a, a religion should console, explain, and enjoin. Deism explains something. Someone said deism is, worships the god that winds our sundials. The deist god is like a rich ant in Australia, benevolent but rarely heard from. But I, I just don't think it's necessary. And in fact, I go beyond that. I, I, I say that Welk, I have a, the chapter's epigraph called Conservatism, Not Theism. The epigraph's from Aristophanes. World is king, having driven out Zeus. Again, the conservative sensibility welcomes world. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.